All right, guys, so this is the last axiom. It's the last class that we've got until, um, uh, I mean, until the next time we do a class like this. Um, it does end up being a bit, uh, I think uh, it wears on, it, I know it wears on me, and I know especially for those of you who have kids, like uh, it can be a difficult thing for, uh, for kids to kind of endure a long Sunday morning like this. And so, uh, so we, we like to do it though every once in a while, and um, we're going to talk at the end about kind of what's next. Um, so the class is ending, uh, but DNA groups uh, don't necessarily need to. And so there will, there will be uh, an opportunity to join a more long-term DNA group, um, which is kind of like the ones you've been doing, but uh, most likely those will be in person uh, in someone's home. And uh, they'll be the last, yeah, <laughs> which Mallory's excited about. Uh, not, on, not on Zoom, which does present its uh, difficulties, I know, but it also is a convenient way for us to actually gather and get some stuff done. So, um, so that's the idea. Uh, those longer term, is this mine? Okay. Clearly spilled a lot. Um, so those longer term DNA groups, uh, they last 9 to 12 months. And uh, it's a big commitment. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about why we do that and uh, what that would be for and why you might be interested in it um, and go from there. But, but let's talk about our last axiom first, okay? So to review, uh, what, are, what are the axioms? Just, just name them out. If you're under 18, I'd like all the under 18-year-olds to speak first, okay? What's our, what was our first axiom? You guys remember? <laughs> What was it? Uh, the goal of the Christian life is love, divine union, and community. Yes. I'm going to shorthand that to say the goal is communion slash love. Good. So that's the goal of the Christian life. It isn't uh, behavior modification. It is not uh, correct thinking. It is an actual participation in the life of God. That's actually what we're going for and what we're doing and how we know if we're doing it right, <laughs> so to speak, okay? So that's our goal, uh, is love. Uh, and and uh, that's not just something that I produce in myself and express, but it's actually I become, uh, I, I indwell and inhabit love as I share in God's life, right? So that's the goal, great. Somebody else under 18, tell me what the second axiom was that we talked about, Genevieve. God is present, he's here, he's with us, that's just a fact, we don't need to think about that or worry about that, he is here, he's present, he's not absent, and he's working, he's at work. Good, third axiom. God is just like Jesus. God is just like Jesus. So the good news is that the God who is present and at work uh, it, it's just like Jesus, right? It'd be, it'd be one thing if the God who is present and at work uh, was a bad guy, right? Uh, but he's not. He's just like Jesus. And so the God that Jesus reveals is the one that we are seeking to be in communion with, the one who is reaching out towards us. Uh, so no matter what we used to think about God, now that we see Christ, um, he, we allow Christ to sort of revamp and revise every other image that we've had about God. Even ones that we've maybe taken from legitimate biblical pictures, right? Maybe we read uh, something uh, that made us scared of God, but we, we allow Jesus to shine his light on that 
and cause us to come into a new understanding. Does that make sense? So we don't read scripture flatly. We don't just pick a scripture and say, well, I guess God is angry and God is like Jesus. No, we read scripture through the lens of Jesus because we're Christians, right? Uh, we're Christians. We follow Jesus. We let him define God for us. Good. Third axiom is that. And then Annika, you're the last one left. What's the fourth axiom? God meets us in reality. Um, Annika, I'm going to ask you to do something that I didn't ask the others to do, but what does that mean for you? Um, I wasn't really here for that class. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. I will ask, I will ask everybody in the room. What, is, what, is that, what are we talking about when we say God meets us in reality? God meets us here now. Good. Right. Right. Good. In the midst of whatever is going on, what actually is going on, that's where God meets us. And so uh, I find great comfort in this. In that, I don't know about you, but I, I find that tendency is is to think that things will be okay when. If I can just, you know, once the, you know, once I get my life put together in one way or another, then I'll be okay, right? But no, actually, right in the, right in the midst of whatever is actually going on, that's where God is waiting to meet me. He's waiting for me to get real about what's real. He meets me there. Good. All right. Fifth axiom. Anybody in the room now? The over 18-year-olds can speak. Anybody? Somebody from that table back there. What's that? I know. So maybe somebody else from that table. Yes. God cares more than you. Yes. So this is, uh, again, a lot of these are overlapping, right? Like God cares more than we do is something that we know because we see what God does in Jesus, or we see the God that Jesus reveals. Um, but it's, it's an important uh, axiom to hold on to because I, again, I oftentimes find myself behaving as if God didn't care as much as I do about situations, right? So I pray as if I have to convince, I have to leverage like all my prayer to get God to do something for me, right? And so that, that way of praying reveals, oh, I don't think God cares about it more than I do. I think I care about it more than God does, and I'm trying to recruit him to my cause. And so it actually helps us pray more faithfully to just say, actually, God, you care about this more than I do, so how do I participate in what you're doing? Even as I do pray. I mean, it's, it's fine for us to petition God. He, he tells us to, right? But uh, the, the, the way that we pray and the way that we petition God depends a lot on whether we assume he cares or doesn't. Good. Sixth axiom. Somebody from this table back here. Bueller? Good. I'm just going to put in through. Because ultimately that's what we're talking about here is, yes, whatever God does through us, he also does in us. But it's the opposite as well. That whatever God does in us, he also does through us. And so there's no bifurcation between what happens through me and what happens in me. There's no bifurcation between what happens in me and what happens through me. It's another way of saying, like, what we're doing when we're doing ministry 
is essentially participating in the kingdom of God and allowing it to sort of have sway in our lives, right? So it's not a skill I learn how to do to you, nor is it that doesn't actually affect me and my heart and my life, nor is it just something that's just for me in my own little private emotional world that doesn't ever affect anybody around me. Does that make sense? So we can just be confident that, that both of those things are true, that whatever God does in us, we can be confident he's going to do through us. And whatever God does through us, we can be confident that the, the main thing is that it's going to happen in us and that it's going to flow out uh, from that space. Because we're participating, again, the first axiom, because we're participating in a life. We're not just uh, learning skills. Does that make sense? All right. So, seventh axiom then today is... It refers back to the first axiom in a bit. Um, if that first axiom is true, if the goal of our discipleship in our life is divine union, if it's participation in God's life uh, through which we grow in love, then how do we actually do it? That's what the seventh axiom is all about. How do we actually participate in this love? If the goal is this, and we can trust that all of these things are true, well, what do we do? Like, how does it actually work? Does that make sense? Does that feel like a, a logical question? <laughs> how does love become more and more definitive of who we are? And so our, our seventh axiom speaks to that reality, uh, and it's this. Um, we learn, I'll just write it out, and then we'll talk about it. So seventh axiom is, we learn, one way to say it, we learn love, through embodied participation. Okay. Well, that's a lot of letters to put on the whiteboard all at one time. We learn love through embodied participation. And here's what that means. Um, when it comes to spiritual knowledge, when it comes to our actual growth in holiness, we haven't really learned anything until we've started doing something. We haven't really learned anything until we've started doing something. Um, until we've started putting something into action, taking a step of trust. And so what we're saying here is that we, we learn love through embodied participation, offering our lives to the good news that we've heard, rather than stepping back from the situation to try to get a clear like, picture of what's going on, like analyzing things from a dispassionate place or by trying to perform morally for God, right? Sort of learning what are the expectations, I will attempt to do those expectations, right? That's not how we learn it. Neither do we learn it by backing away from the situation and trying to analyze or memorize or get our thinking straight. But rather, we learn through embodied participation by offering our bodies in concrete, tangible ways over and over. As we, as we hear good news from Jesus, we trust it. What does it look like to trust this good news today, this week? And we offer, and it always is an embodied response of some kind. It's never just, I'm going to think about that some, that would be great. We, we offer that response with our bodies. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means. Uh, but that's the axiom, that's the principle. A couple quotes uh, that relate to this. Uh, from Ronald, or maybe Roald Rollheiser. I think it's Ronald Rollheiser. I can't remember. Uh, what's that? 
Ronald. It's Ronald? Okay, great. Um, when, we, when we understand something, only insofar as we can grasp it intellectually. Okay? You guys have a picture of what that means? When we understand something, only insofar as we can grasp it intellectually. And only insofar as we can possess it. And only insofar as we can remain in control and secure in the face of it. We relate only partially to that reality. So I know that's kind of a, that's kind of a, a head full of uh, words there. So what, what he's saying is, if the only way that we know something is intellectually, and the only way that we know something is uh, so that we can possess it as an intellectual fact, remain secure, remain in control, we only relate partially to that reality. So there's, there's some things that we do like this, right? So Sydney, you're taking AP World History right now, right? Yeah. And you relate to AP World History basically intellectually, right? Like with your mind. You're learning things about world history that you didn't know before. It'd probably be another thing entirely if you were to visit some of these countries that you're learning about, right? Wouldn't that be different? To visit, to touch, to see, to smell, to taste, right? That would be a different way of learning. Or if you were to, you know, actually be able to participate in some of those things. Um, so what, what Rollheiser is saying here is that our knowledge of God is not like our knowledge of AP world history. Does that make sense? Our knowledge of God is, is something that we only relate partially to God if we only just understand facts about him. And if we only understand those facts so that we can remain in control and secure. Does that make sense? We have to do something beyond that if we're going to really know God. And then uh, Brene Brown says this, there's another quote. We get to the head, we get from the head to the heart through the hands. We get from the head to the heart through the hands. Have you guys ever said that? Like, I know it in my head, but apparently I don't know it in my heart, right? It hasn't, like, taken root in my body. Like, I know this, but we're frustrated about that. How do you get the head knowledge into your heart? Through the hands. Do something. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Participate in the reality. Assume it's true and try it out and see what happens. Deb. Yes. That's incarnational, and that involves victory, pain, yep. suffering, birth, death. Yes. And it feels to me very truncated when we just focus on the kingdom of God. 
kingdom of God is only we bring prosperity, goodness, and health and greatness. Yes. But let's forget about the rest of even the body of person Yes. Yeah. So yeah. That's a great question. So I'm hearing two things there, and I wonder if others would, you know, chime in or have reflections or questions that relate to that. Uh, I think you're right, first of all, that a lot of, a lot of, you know, the kingdom, you know, stuff that that we hear about is a bit too. I'll use the word triumphalistic, where it only focuses on the good that we can bring if we just, you know, would get our faith you know, up to the right level and, you know, that, that kind of a thing. But just, if we could just kind of, you know, and, you know, there's some, you know, you don't want to wallow. There's some good in it, right? Um, but, again, when suffering, when, when someone doesn't get healed, and we prayed all night, we fasted for three days, and then they, they still die. Like, do we have a theology for, like, hearing good news in the midst of that and understanding how to participate in Christ's life in that case, right? That's the question. Good. Yeah, and so that, I mean, I would say that is part of our embodied participation. It's always going to be hearing good news in the midst of whatever we're going through and then offering our bodies. And sometimes we do offer our bodies to suffer. But knowing, right, the good news part of it is like knowing that, okay, I'm, I know because I'm offering my life to the Lord here that I'm suffering with the Lord, that I'm actually sharing in his crucifixion. Right? As I pour out, Michael Gorman talks a lot about this in a lot of his books, if you guys want to read theologically about it, a guy named Michael Gorman. But he talks about our experience of theosis, which is uh, kind of a mostly an Eastern Orthodox concept. But that means just becoming one with God. So our experience of theosis is an experience of co-crucifixion with Christ and co-resurrection, but it's, all, it's, but it's also like kenosis, it's pouring ourselves out like Christ did. It's being crucified like Christ was. It's being raised with Christ, yes. Being a sin, you know, we, we dwell in the heavenlies. It's kind of all of those things all at once. But that is our life, is to follow Christ into crucifixion, trusting resurrection. Yeah. And so we do need a theology of suffering to be able to really embrace the whole thing, to be able to embodied, embodiedly participate. Yeah, Carlo. is an experience of co-crucifixion with Christ. Which he also says is the same thing as justification, by the way. So it's a really interesting linking that he does of all of these concepts that in the West have been sort of separated out. Justification is this abstract thing that happened in heaven, and I, you know, hopefully that I got moved to the right column you know, in the ledger. I don't know, though. It doesn't really have anything to do with my life. No, Gorman says, your justification is your life in Christ. And so your justification is the fact that you have been co-crucified with Christ, that you're living the life of Christ with Christ. Yeah. Carlo. Sorry, I have two questions. Okay. Um, first off, the spiritual upbringing that I grew up in would have been like, oh my gosh, no, you're saying that we're being saved through our works. Like, Good. You know, like a, yep. a huge like, pushback because we're like this idea of salvation through mm -hmm. works. Mm-hmm. Even that, I kind of hate because it makes 
choose to have a good faith, and that means I'm not going to work with them. But, right. Um, it's a trap. Yeah. Right. right? <laughs> okay. So I should be as bad as possible. I don't know. Like, I don't get it. You know, like what should I do here? Yeah. But but um, so that's one like question I I'm curious about. But another question I'm curious about is um, I'm a huge fan of like nonviolent communication. Like, yeah. Marshall Rosenberg. Uh huh. And like his idea is like you know whenever you see something that like frustrates you or bothers you or whatever doesn't click, like take a step back and like. Go through like these questions in your head, real quick. Just like, okay, why am I feeling this? Good. Where is it? Like, where is this feeling coming from? Blah blah. blah. Um, but is that like, would that not be embodied participation until I like, start doing something after I've gotten through that like headspace? Right. Okay. So that was, that was a question because like the thing is like right. that, that like granted it's difficult, but the the wisdom of like taking a step back. Yep. To analyze and then. Yes. Engage yeah. head. Yep. Is that is that like pausing before we get to the Good. body participation, or is that part of the simulation as well? Good. Uh, those are great questions. Really, really good questions. So uh, I would say, and I again curious if you all have insight on this as well. Um, the thing I come back to about grace and, and like works, the, the fear of salvation by works, um, it was solved for me by reading like three sentences from Dallas Willard, <laughs> uh, who said this, and it might not be solved for you, I'm just saying like for me it just clicked into place. And Willard says, um, grace is not opposed to effort. It's not opposed to works. Grace is opposed to earning. Does that make sense? Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. So you can, in grace, apply a lot of effort. You can try, you can, you can work really hard in your spiritual life and not be trying to earn anything. You're just responding to grace. So when I heard that, I, cre I created a matri matrix in my mind, which is always what I do. When there's a false dichotomy, there's usually a matrix that helps us understand things, right? So if this is, if this is grace, right, then what it's, what it's supposed to is earning. Earning is down here. Effort is over here. And then, like, no effort is over here. Does that make sense? So grace is opposed to earning. Effort is opposed to no effort. So when people are worried about salvation by works, I usually just say, like, you're, you're assuming that we have to live over here, right, where there's no effort. Where if we're, if we're trying to apply effort... And we're, and we're assuming that we're earning something, we end up looking like, what would you name this quadrant? Probably lots of ways we could talk about it. I'm trying really hard, and I'm assuming that I'm earning something as I try really hard. Right. Like, I should have something underneath my belt at this point. Like, yeah. I'm not trying to brag, but yeah, I haven't yeah, seen yeah. you at the homeless shelter, so <laughs> God yeah. has that in my back. Yeah, totally. Like, hanging grand three. What did you say, Nancy? Both the right. Yeah, yeah. Where our works are sort of like justifying us. We're being justified by our works. Well, Katie? I grew up here and I want to get credit for that. Get credit for that. Yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah, it's all good. That's a good name for that. It's kind of a legalism down here, isn't it? It's like, I'm doing this stuff because I, it earns me salvation. So here I go, right? Now, if we trust grace but we put in no effort, 
That would be like the theological term might be antinomianism, what? right? What? Greasy what? grace. <laughs> Greasy grace. Greasy grace. That's what we used to call it. All right. Cheap grace. Yeah, that's what Bonhoeffer called it. Yeah, Deb. Just, we're just living out our identity here. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think when people are opposed, when people get worried about grace and works, usually they're thinking along this dichotomy right here. Gracey grace and legalism. So the only, the only imagination they have for the application of effort is that you'll end in legalism. That to basically apply effort is to get rid of grace. But in fact, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Right? So this would be just like living a pagan life. Right? I'm not trying to earn anything, and I'm not trying real hard about anything either, right? I'm just, I'm just doing whatever. But this is, this is uh, I mean, this is the Christian life. <laughs> I mean, we could, we could put all kinds of stuff in there. Um, let's, let's put discipleship. This is the life of discipleship. Because it does demand intentionality. You have to intend to follow Jesus. It doesn't happen automatically. It's not something that you just sort of, you know, hey, I, I go to church, and I, I come to this class, and I go to DNA group. Like, it doesn't matter how many church meetings you go to. Unless you are actually intending to hear the words of Jesus, put them into practice so that you can participate in his life, you're not a disciple. You know what I mean? It's the same kind of question as, like, are you studying Spanish? Who in the room is studying Spanish? Okay, we've got three people studying Spanish. <laughs> Annika and Sydney, how do you know you're studying Spanish? You go to Spanish class. Good. You learn words, right? And is it evident you're practicing? <laughs> yeah. Not as much as I. Yeah. <laughs> but like the evidence would be, can you say something like, how do you say my name is Sydney in Spanish? Great. She's clearly learning Spanish, right? Because she, she, I, I'm assuming that's right. I don't even know. <laughs> right, right. She's like, blibbidi, blibbidi, blibbidi. Um, now, does that make sense? Like, are you a disciple of Jesus is the same kind of question. Well, how would you know? Well, yeah, I, I put myself in environments where I can hear his word. And I am part of a community where I'm actually seeking to live out, you know, his teachings. I'm putting them into practice, and I'm learning as I go. And my, I am, you can point to evidence, perhaps. Like, I, I remember, when I first started learning all this, I, you know, I, one of the first things I learned about myself, uh, when my kids, when my son got to be three years old, I learned that I was a very angry person. I was not aware of that before, before that time. 
I had hidden my anger from myself, and I'd hid it from everybody else, but this little three-year-old brought it right out of me, you know? And it was God's grace in my life, because it was like a big moment for me of like, oh my gosh, this is like, this is something that I really need to grapple with, or it's going to shipwreck my life, you know what I mean? Um, and so I learned how to put in some effort trusting God's grace, right, over time to do some training to offer my life an embodied participation, not just memorize verses about how bad anger was, right, but to offer myself in these moments in very discreet ways as, as God proclaimed good news to me. And I remember a year into this, sort of just being intentional about this. I remember a year in being struck that I wasn't, like, things that would normally make me angry, situations, people saying things to me, my kids disobeying or whatever, things that used to sort of set me off, didn't. So there was like, I was like, oh gosh, it's actually working. Like, God is actually <coughs> making me less angry. Love is doing something in me. You know what I mean? I remember what a shock that was and what a confirmation it was that, okay, this is, you know what I mean? Like discipleship, is, this is the fruit of that offering of my body as a living sacrifice. Good. So we've only dealt with your first question, Carlo, which was a wonderful one. Any, any other thoughts about Carlo's first question here about like offering our embodied participation being like the fear of salvation by works? Yeah. Uh, so I know people who have gone to study abroad program. So let's yeah. say like, oh, uh, we're going to learn Spanish. Let's go to live in Mexico for a year, right? But the entire time I'm in Mexico, I'm only hanging out with other English speakers. Yeah. And like, I'm only like watching American TV shows and listening to American music. Then it's like, you're in race, but you're not trying. And that's right. Like the, yeah. I haven't put myself in an environment where I would actually have to put forth some effort to learn something new, right? And that, that is, like, that is discipleship. Like, you do have to intend to do it, and it will be uncomfortable. It will feel weird, you know what I mean? It'll be off-putting, and you won't feel like you're balanced, right? Um, why? Well, because you're learning something new, you know? It's like your muscles getting sore when you first start working out. Of course they're sore, they're not used to this, you know? But go back tomorrow because they'll get used to it, and you'll become a stronger person. Same with discipleship. Like, keep, keep it up, see what happens. This is the invitation Jesus gives to people. It's just like, you wanna live in the kingdom? Just love your enemies. See what that does for you. Dallas Willard, um, again, uh, he was asked one time at a conference, uh, what, like, what's your approach to evangelism? Because I, I, I don't think it would be chick tracks, right? We knew enough about Willard to know, like, you're not handing out chick tracks. He was a professor, right, at USC. So he's in the midst of, like, he's not, like, in a church bubble. You know, he's, he's a philosophy professor at USC. And so he, um, you know, people ask him, like, how do you approach evangelism? You know, you've got these students who are probably not, most of them aren't Christians. And so how do you approach that? And basically he said, like, when I find somebody who's interested in Jesus, uh, I just tell them, read the Gospels until you find something that Jesus said to do that seems like a good idea to you, and then try it. 
And when you fail, ask for help. <laughs> That's it. That was his approach to evangelism. And isn't it brilliant? It's just like, put Jesus' teaching into practice, and you won't be able to do it. But when you find that you're not able to do it, ask for his help, and he'll give it to you. Like, that's your entryway into the kingdom. But you have to actually, like, find something that seems like a good idea and put it into practice. You know? What would it look like to bless those who persecute you? Well, there's, you know, lots, lots of ways to do that. What would that look like? You know? You can pray for them. Pray for them every day. See what, see what Jesus does there for you, you right? You could buy them a present. You could bless them. You could send them some money. You know, like, you could do these things, right? You could offer your body to the teachings of Jesus, put them into practice, and then find out what happens. See if it doesn't open a doorway into a new kind of life for you. Great. Okay, let's deal with the second question, which was, remind me. I remember it was really good. <laughs> non resistance. Uh, oh, good, so, yes. Yeah, um, the idea of embodied versification you're talking about, like how you know it's more like a, it, it's not what our what we think about something, but it's more like what we're doing with our bodies. Right. But I would love to become the type of person that when something negative happens to me, I can take like thirty seconds and be like, all right, let me like why 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 did I feel like this? Yep. You know, why why did I think that this should be a reaction I should have? Um, Okay, let me think. What, 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 what is it that I actually want? All right, this is my want, this is my needs. Yep. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, cool. And now let me engage a little bit better instead yep. of like just screaming and being like, no, you always do this, and this is why you never blah, 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 blah. You know? Yep. Yeah. Yes, good. All right. That is a really good question. Um, and I wanted to bring us back to this, our discipleship wheel, yeah. uh, to answer it. The, the practice we're focusing on here is do. Right? And the, the practices of nonviolent communication that you're talking about are basically almost identical to this move here from, dig, from detect to dig. Yeah. So when I, when I have a negative reaction to something or I find, I find myself sort of ticked off at somebody or, you know, whatever, like when I find myself reactive, um, it is an appropriate first move to first say, oh, I'm having a Kairos. And it's okay for me to step back and reflect and say, what's going on in me? Rather than assuming the problem is you. And if you would just stop being a jerk, I wouldn't get mad. You know, like, does that make sense? So what, what that, that first move that you're talking about there would be to stay above the waterline. Have you ever talked about the waterline? So like the waterline of our awareness. The things that happen above this waterline are visible, are easy to see. The things that happen below are heart desire things, that we have, to, we have to intend to go down there, right, and meet God there in the midst of our desires to discern what, where am I believing bad news. That's the process of, the process of nonviolent communication is essentially this process of saying, huh, I wonder why that ticked me off so much. What's happening in me that makes me react this way? What bad news, what lie am I believing about this person or God or myself or reality that's bringing about this reaction. What does Jesus have to say about this? What's the good news for me? What is the gospel speaking to me of good news? And then our embodied participation is in response to good news, not my negative reaction. 
You know, like the response, if I keep it above the waterline, it's like, how can I make you stop making me mad? Or how can I fix myself? Or how can I, no, we have to dive below the waterline, discern bad news, declare good news. And then our embodied participation is a response to that good news. It's like, oh, if this is true, well then, how do I say yes to this? How do I surrender to this reality? How do I act as if this is true? How do I trust that the gospel is true here? And then we do it, no matter how we feel about it, no matter what we think about it. That's the risk we take of faith, to just say, all right, Jesus, I'm going to take you at your word, and we're going to see what happens. You probably have another Kairos. You just process that one through. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a really good, really good point. I love, I, I know only a little bit about it, but nonviolent communication is brilliant. And it, it's very similar to this process. Yes, Spencer? Just to, to go back to the Willard quote, um, like if somebody reads Turning the Other Cheek and then they practice it, I mean, there's a way of that happening and it being your due, right? Like, oh, I feel sure. like I'm, I feel antagonized by this person, so my due is to respond this way the next time I'm with them. It's very likely that your due for this discipleship will, will fail. Right. Um, but the grace is both that the fact that it fails doesn't disqualify you, but also yes. that if you keep iterating, you'll find that over time, not only are you more able or empowered to turn the other cheek, but even as you turn the other cheek, you won't have hatred in your heart. But that doesn't happen just by choosing the response. Yeah, right? yeah, good. No, that's a really good. That's a really good point. Does that make sense? So that our 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 doing, our embodied participation, like it will take some time to to sort of do the work. It, it's a long term. This is why our our real DNA groups, our long term DNA groups, are nine to twelve months. It takes a while. It takes a while of regular practice to learn this new rhythm, to learn this new way. Um, and most oftentimes, the first time is a failure. Um, and that's, that's part of, in order to embrace this one, we, this axiom, we do need to have a new relationship to failure. Most of us have a relationship to failure that is like, well, that disqualifies you. Or that didn't work. You know? Um, yeah, Nancy. I'm thinking of the, let's try again. Just, Just like, try, yeah, yeah, try again so without any new. Way. I think that's where Dallas Willard's comment of, when it doesn't work, then you ask for help. Yes. And that's where... Because it's either you go back to the body, you have Christ, you ask for help, or you ask, you ask the Lord. Right. And so that's, so in, at some level, effort, all on itself over there, can look the same if you're just done out of grace or out of trying to earn it. Yes. It can look the same. That's right. our motivation. Yes. And where that comes from. Yep. But that, I think also just that, just try, try, try to try harder. Right. And just do it a little bit differently and maybe it'll right. work. Sort of yeah. But, but Good. But Dallas Willard is moving us to... Ask for help, right. So that, that, uh, that connects with so many other things, too, like your comment, Nancy. It connects with what, what's the goal? Because if my goal is just, I will unfailingly turn the other cheek when someone strikes me. You know, but while I do it, I'm going to be like, I'll show you, buddy. God's going to get you. You know? I can't, but God will. Right? Like, I'm not allowing God to work in me. I have the wrong goal if it's just I want, I want to externally conform to the teachings of Jesus. Like that's, a, that's something that we could do, right? And I think that's, that's caused all kinds of, I mean, it's caused all kinds of harm. People have assumed we can't do it. They look at the Sermon on the Mount and they're like, oh yeah, Jesus is just setting the bar really high for us so that we know that we can't do it. Not, no, 
Like, you can do it, you just need God's help, <laughs> right? And so there's a, there's a uh, I think our imagination for what we're doing when we're doing has to be transformed. So I'm not just ex- conforming externally, I'm participating. Like, this is me entering into the life, you know, and failing a lot of times. Yeah, turn the other cheek, but boy, you know, like I've still got hatred in my heart towards them. Well, then you know. It's like, okay, well, God's still at work, so ask for help, you know? Like, what, what, what good news do you need to hear, you know? And how do you offer your body to that good news? Yeah, Deb. Yeah. Children don't mind failure. Yeah. Right? Kids kids relationships with fail like I took my little sister ice skating one time. I don't even know how to do this, so she just said, Not yet. Yeah. As opposed to adults like, oh I don't even know how to do this. So like this is like a yeah like a oh like I feel bad, like I'll try it, go around the ring one time, fall on my butt and be like, Oh my god, it was embarrassing, I'm done. Yeah. Right. Instead of like the haven't gotten it yet, give me a second. Like Yeah. Yeah. Or or asking for help, right? Yeah. You're like, how do I do this? I keep falling down, you know, and asking someone who knows how to do it, right? So yeah, the the shame of like failure, and this is our relationship to failure. Like we experience it as a shameful thing, rather than an opportunity to learn. And we do have to we do have to that has to be transformed because, like, it's a big part of the discipleship process is failure. It's a big part of it. Yep. For the majority of it, like we're doing this yeah. most of the time, we're doing this in community in a group. Yeah. Uh, if not, most of the time your due is to go confess it to somebody, uh-huh. like if you're doing it just on your own. But I find it so encouraging for me as someone who in shame spirals so easily to be able to do the do. Yeah. <laughs> and then immediately go do the to my community. Yeah. Like if I fail, I go to my community to be cared for. Yeah. And if I succeed, I go to my community to celebrate. Yeah. And to be celebrated with. Yeah. And so being able to know that the next step is like with people. Yeah. I don't know that I can do the do without. Yeah. Step. Right. Yeah, the next step of debriefing is really important, is what is what Mauer is saying here. Right? It's not just it's just not just myself. And oftentimes just the knowledge that somebody's gonna ask you about that, it does break the shame of it. And our participation, like our failure is part of our participation in Christ, right? So if I fail, like, and I get cared for by a community, and they, and they weep with me who's weeping, that's participation. That's participation in the life. You know what I mean? Like, that's part of it. So it, it, the, the failure is all part of it. Um, it's good. Yeah, because the failure isn't, like, you debrief and it's not, it's just, it's over. You fail, it's like, well, let's detect something else is still Right. It's just another Kairos. You get to dig further. You get to, like, really explore the bad news, not just yeah. like the bottom of the Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, well, let's, uh, 
there's a lot we could talk about here. I mean, how, this, this works in discipleship in a lot of uh, interesting ways. Um, uh, I'll just say, like, there's a difference between teaching and training. And uh, what we're trying to do, like, the model of discipleship we're working with here is more of a training model than a teaching model. Does that make sense? So Paul, uh, First Corinthians, uh, you know, they're dealing with, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he's dealing with this kind of a celebrity culture. And uh, you guys know this, like in the first chapter, he's like, some of you are like, yeah, I follow, I'm on Apollos' team, and I follow Paul. And then others are like, Jesus juking them and saying like, well, I follow Jesus. How about that, you know? Uh, they're trying to, and so Paul is saying like, uh, the way that Paul narrates the way that he tried to subvert that celebrity culture, he didn't try to come in and say, like, I'm going to be the best celebrity I can to you. Like, rhetorically, I'm going to wow you with my, my, my skills. Instead, he, he subverted it by saying, I was determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And then later in chapter 4, he says, because your problem is you have 10,000 teachers. I think this is how he puts it. You have 10,000 teachers, but you don't have many fathers. You've got plenty of people who can wow you with their rhetoric or probably teach you some really good things. What you need, though, is a father. And what Paul means when he talks about a father is he's talking about training. He's talking about someone who can set an example for you and call you into a process of training so that you can be discipled, so you can actually live this out. So you have, have 10,000 teachers, but you don't have many fathers. What you need is fathers who can train you. Um, and so that's a big part of how uh, discipleship works uh, for us in the DNA groups. It's, it's, uh, it's a call into a process, an ongoing process of transformation through training, where we actually put our bodies on the line in embodied participation. And we learn to trust, we learn to trust God you know, in the midst of that. Um, maybe, maybe a couple examples would be helpful. So the, the practice we're talking about here is do. Right, and uh, there's a lot of ways to uh, to talk about that. Man, you guys anticipated almost everything in my notes. This is great with your questions. We talked about reflection and debriefing, how that's really important. And this is how Jesus trains his own disciples. Right, he sends them out, sends out the seventy-two, and what are they doing? They're participating in his authority. They come back and they're like, it works. And what does he do? He reflects with them. He debriefs with them. And later on, he's on the Mount of Transfiguration. He comes down, and they're arguing with the Pharisees, and they couldn't cast out a demon. And then later on, they ask him, why couldn't we cast it out? And I think what Jesus is saying is, like, he's, he's helping them understand. He's like, well, you, you were arguing with the Pharisees. You weren't praying. You weren't paying attention to God. That's why you couldn't cast the demon out. Does that make sense? So he's, he's helping. Jesus could have run a class, right? He could have run a demonology 401 Here's all the demons and how to cast them out. But no, he waits for his disciples to fail and then he meets them there. He's like, here's, here's why you failed. This thing you guys have with your arguing with the Pharisees, that thing you love to do, it's not helping you. Don't do it. You know? And he offers his own life as an example. I never, I never engage him on their terms. You guys can do the same. Pay attention to God. You can cast the demons out. Um, great failure, etc., etc. I just want to say this too: um, worship that we engage in, eleven fifteen a.m. on Sundays. Um, worship is training as well. 
Like what we're doing is an embodied response to what God, to the good news that God offers us. And it ends up becoming training. It, it is an end of, unto itself, right? But that is our participation. It's part of our participation in the life of God. I think a lot of times we Westerners have an idea. We have an idea of what was happening when we go to church is that we're going to learn something new about God, right? Rather than actually, I may learn nothing new about God, but this is still something where I'm offering my body. And this is part, this is part of the reason I became an Anglican, to be honest. Like the 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 church world I grew up in, it was really really easy to just come and watch what was happening on the stage and be impressed by it or not and then go home. You know what I mean? Maybe learn something new. Maybe think, oh, that song was awesome. Or I really loved how the singers came in at that point. And, you know what I mean? And there's some good stuff about beauty that, that's, you know, going on there. But there wasn't much participation on my part as a congregant. And so part of what drew me to the Anglican tradition or just the liturgical tradition in general is you guys notice, like, like we're using our bodies all the time. We're speaking, saying things back and forth to one another. We're singing together, right? We are kneeling. We are making the sign of the cross. We're eating. We're drinking. We're giving one another the peace, you know, shaking hands, hugging, kissing even. Turn and bless the children. Turn and bless the children, right? Yeah. Yep, stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's, that's what we're doing in worship, right? And if we could, you can obviously do all of that stuff from a legalistic standpoint, right? Not trusting God's grace. But if you do it trusting God's grace, this is my participation in what's happening here, then it is discipleship. We're growing into the life of Christ as we worship. Especially submitting to forms and patterns of worship that have been given to us by the church. These, these have been sort of handed down to us. Anyway, um, and it is how DNA groups work. So I would, I would encourage you to talk to your DNA group leader. We're, tra- we're still trying to figure out how this is all going to work long term. But talk to your DNA group leader this week about the long term DNA groups. Again, nine to 12 months. Uh, it's a big commitment. Um, but I do know that the, the people who have engaged in that commitment um, have, I mean, it's, it's not like a fail-safe thing. Uh, there's probably some people whose lives haven't been transformed. But a lot of people have had significant life-changing transformation happen to them in, in an ongoing way, um, if, you'll, if you'll commit to that. It is a commitment, especially in our day and age. There's all kinds of stuff that's going on, and it's going to be hard to make it, and you've you know, you got commitments, that kind of thing. But if you make the space for it, it really is uh, a transformative experience uh, for a lot of people. So... Um, okay, We've got a few minutes left here. Um, let's. Well, what what other questions or reflections do you guys have? And then I just want to talk briefly about what we're talking about when we're talking about doing. Anything else? Yeah, Jeff. Yeah. One time, it's over, done. Holy, everybody. Yeah. You know, when you live in that science quadrant, it's lots of Mm. gray. Yes. And hopefully increasing more to light, right? Yeah. uh, 
Yes, that's good. That's good. Specifically, there's not like levels of holiness. Yeah. Like, yeah. I've been doing this for so long, I'm at holy level five. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah. I should be at holy level six next month, but, you know, no, it's, it's yeah. But I just had a new baby, and so I haven't been able to. No, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, right. back down to a two. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like it's more authentic and naturally. That's how, like, in life, there's never. This is not like those. Like, now my baby's so very old, but she's like eleven, and she's like, so when I start puberty, I'm like, it's not like a day that we're like, welcome, like, yeah. You know, like, like, it's like a thing that you just like, oh, I'm doing this a little bit more, and then yes. you just puberty stops. Like, it's not like a day that we're like, yeah, we're done. You're just doing it. Yeah. It's like, you right. know, it's like, yes. uh, yeah. it goes and it comes, you know, like. Yeah. Yes. No, yeah. I, 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 I would say just one thing that's like, kind of personal. Uh, like, I'm, at, I'm 33, and so I've lived long enough now where I've been redeemed and made new a couple times. And, like, I can look back and try to. I'm, I'm seeing the times now where I'm, I'm trying to rediscover discoveries from, from earlier in my life. Yeah, and then bringing them back. Any growth, no. That's really good. And I, I think that relates to what you were saying, Jeff, because I have had a lot of people that I've discipled, and I felt this myself, where I assume that, like, if I if I do my do right, if I if I offer my body and it goes well, and I find, oh wow, I'm less angry, and this is going really well, and then I find another situation happens where, like, I'm angry again. I assume that, oh, it didn't work, or I've failed now, or this, this wasn't everything it was cracked up to be, right? Rather than realizing, no, actually, probably what's happening is there's just layers being revealed, right? And they're going to continue to be revealed, and we just keep peeling back those layers and allowing. What we're doing is not sort of working on ourselves, but we're allowing the Holy Spirit to reveal more and more. Like, as soon as you deal with one layer, the next layer presents itself. By the power of the Holy Spirit. It's just part of the growth. Yeah, Deb. I think when you have that tendency, as people, you don't have to start that scaffolding for people. And it happens, it almost looks like you messed up now. Yes. Yes. Because it's just so easy to do. Yes. I don't know what that is. Yeah. All of a sudden, you're like, what's your purpose? God's there, and there's all this smoke. Jesus comes in the clouds. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah, I think I relate that too to, you know, that God meets us in reality. And any time we've built a structure for our ego, it's not real. It's not the true self, right? It's a, it's a projection. It's an image I would like for you to think about me. And so it's not real. And God actually can't, I mean, maybe this is stating it too strongly, but I think God can't meet us in unreality. If we insist on living in the structures that our ego creates, if we insist on living in that place, I think it's very difficult for God to meet us and talk to us. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. You're not living in the person of Christ. You're living in the yep. legalistic yep. understanding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it can be a heady drug, especially when it's like true information. It's true stuff, right? But if you do it as a way of bolstering your own ego, you won't, you won't find life. Good. Um, so guys, a couple practical things about do, about this practice on our, on our discipleship wheel. It's important to remember that this is always a response to good news. Okay? It's not a way of fixing myself. It's not a way of solving a problem. It's a, it's a way of saying yes to news, to good news to the gospel that's been proclaimed. Okay? Does anybody have an example that they are willing to share of the last time that they like had a do that was like a concrete, tangible thing that they did in response to good news? Anybody have an example of that? Do you, Genevieve? Is your hand up? No? Okay, all right. You just waving to your friend? Okay. Annika, do you have one? Yes, I do. Go ahead. Um, we, You write stuff down on post-it yeah, notes? Yeah, write our good news down on post-it notes and like, put it somewhere. Good. Yeah. And that's just like a physical way of seeing our do. Yeah, good. So sometimes the do is just a way of remind, calling to mind this good news. Sometimes that's what we need. So write it down on a post-it note. I've done this tons, right? If this is a new thought that I don't habitually think yet, write it down. Put it on a mirror. Put it in your car. You know, put it wherever you're going to see it. And then like speak it. You know? And as you speak it, hear Jesus proclaiming it over you. So that's a good example of a, of a do. Anybody else have, a, have another do that they want to share? A way of entrusting? I can share one. I just thought of this one. Um, I can't remember what week it was, but I remember sharing. It was either in this class or with a group of leaders. I ended up sharing a... Um, I can't remember many of the details now that I think about it. Um, so maybe this was a good example. But uh, I remember sharing. Oh, I remember what it was. So my, my Kairos um, had to do with, remember the Kairos I'm detecting, right? Uh, the Kairos had to do with um, our leaders and me learning to lead in a new way now that we've got DNA groups that I'm not leading. So Matt and I don't lead any of the DNA groups. This is the first time in the history of the table that that's happened. And I'm finding myself a little off balance. I'm not used to not sort of being able to be directly in touch with kind of everybody in the church and their own discipleship process. So it's, it's weird for me and difficult for me. And so that, that was part of my kairos was like, I'm making a lot of missteps, I think. And I'm not sure I'm actually investing in the leaders in the way that I'm supposed to be. You know, I'm just learning as I go. And... <clears throat> I discerned that my bad news was that I, I feel ashamed of that, and I feel like I should be doing a better job. My good news was something along the lines of, uh, you know, that God's, that God's, you know, given me authority to be able to kind of lead in this way, and lead by example. And so my do was simply confessing the fact that I feel a little off balance. Instead of trying to lead my leaders better, I confess to them that I'm learning how to lead them. And you can tell me if I'm not leading you well, because I want to know, because we're all learning how to do this together. Does that make sense? That's a way of offering my, it's, it's usually an embodied thing. It was, it was done in a social environment, 
So a lot of times the do is just something that I'm sharing with, with a community. Sharing in my weakness, especially if my good news has to do with like that being okay. Does that make sense? So it's always a response to good news. Um, it's always trusting a person. That person is Jesus. <laughs> so we're always trusting a person. A, a, a person. It is concrete and specific. Uh, it doesn't earn God's favor, as we said. It's embodied and social, and it's about surrender, not control. There's a lot of ways to talk about it, um, but I, I and that you guys can talk about this in your DNA groups. Um, the best way to learn how to to do it, to do this practice is to, is to simply be part of a community that is that is encouraging its practice, right? To learn how to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, to learn to dwell in love through embodied participation. Yes, Katie. We both missed the third and fourth one. Sorry. Yes, so it's con, I, I went through them very quickly. I apologize. It's concrete and specific. So oftentimes you should, you should be able to measure it or man, it should be manageable, like you're not going to go save the world or study the Bible for 18 hours straight or whatever. Uh, it should be meaningful, where it should be touching the, 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 the realm of the good news that you've been spoken to in. And it should be uh, measurable. You should be able to know if you did it or not, right? So my do of sharing my own learning with my leaders, like I either did that or I didn't. And so that, that, that can be something that I say, well, I did it or I didn't. Does that make sense? So it needs to be concrete and specific. Um, it doesn't earn God's favor. That's kind of some of what we've been talking about here. Uh, I'm going to put embodied, which, I mean, that's part of our axiom here. It's oftentimes social. I'll put social or communal. It can be really powerful to just share what you're learning with someone, especially if the person you're learning to love is, you know, lives with you. Uh, that can be really powerful. And then it's about surrender, not control. So there is always a sense in which our do is not a way for us to control outcomes. It's not a way for us to try to secure uh, results. It's not a way for us to fix problems. It usually feels like a death of some kind. It feels like a risk feels like we're stepping out into something that we're not used to trusting, right? And so this gets back to like our participation is co-crucifixion. This is part of what it means to pour ourselves out and die with Christ on the cross, trusting Jesus for our own resurrection with him, right? We're participating in his life. And so it always feels like a surrender of control, not a regaining of control. Um, I can, I can say one more thing about it. <clears throat> Oftentimes, our, our dues, they're, I'm going to write this one up here, they're not primarily cognitive, which means it's not primarily an exercise of your mind. They're also not primarily corrective. So not cognitive, not corrective. It's not a way of fixing a problem. But the, the word would be cooperative. Does that make sense? We're learning to operate with, to cooperate with the work of 
grace in our life, the work of God in our life. So our do is always a participation in the life. It's not a way of performing morally. It's a way of participating mutually. It's not only an imitation. It is an inhabitation. What am I say? It's a sharing in life, not just a simulation of life. Just to do a few alliterations there. Okay? We need to go. Any final questions or, or observations or thoughts? Okay. So friends, uh, we're going to worship here in a second. Uh, do ask your DNA group leaders this week about um, the long-term DNA groups, um, if you're interested in that. Uh, again, it's a big commitment, um, but it, it does produce transformational results if you give yourself over to it. So I invite you, I invite you into it. Amen? Amen. All right, friends.